0: This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another From the Deck Plates episode of the Proceedings Podcast, where we take time to dive into topics that explore the perspectives, opinions, and experiences from a variety of enlisted naval professionals. I'm your host, Paul Kingsbury, retired fleet mass chief and co-director of outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute. And joining me today is Petty Officer First Class Nick Harrison, whose article, assess Lethality as an Individual Skill?, was featured in this month's From the Fleet section of Proceedings. And for those who don't necessarily know that, that section of Proceedings magazine each month is reserved solely for enlisted authors and their perspective. Uh, Nick is currently serving out at Coastal Riverine Group 1, training and evaluation unit in Imperial Beach, California. So Nick, thanks for using writing to dare to make a difference, and welcome to the Proceedings Podcast.
1: Hey, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me here as well. It's, uh, it's great work that you guys do here with this uh, this venue. Thanks.
0: All right, no problem. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. I kind of just teed your current thing, but when did you join the Navy? How did you get into it, and how are things been so far?
1: Yeah, so uh, I've been in for around eight years. Uh, did nuclear weapons security with, uh, with the Marines in Kings Bay, Georgia. Uh, embarked security in 5th Fleet with Coastal River Marine Group 2, Detachment Bahrain. And I actually just checked out of the training and evaluation unit with Coastal River in Group 1. And uh, I'm en route to the uh, USS Seedum for some independent duties. So I'm kind of in limbo at school right now.
0: Okay, awesome. Yeah, back to, uh, back to underway time. So with all that said, what's your assessment of how the fleet is doing? A lot's been going on. COVID impacts, operational tempos. There's been a variety that's been written about and discussed with uh, fleet readiness. So what's your current pulse on the fleet?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, regarding the climate, I think everything's improving, you know, along with the rest of the nation. Uh, Restrictions are getting better. Those compensatory measures that uh, seek to counter COVID are being reassessed. I think uh, everyone's learned a lot, you know, about how to lead and accomplish the mission, maybe virtually or through some other means than face-to-face. And uh, it's been a difficult pandemic-denied environment. At the same time, really, I think, you know, sailors like ships – I think we can get burnout because we're running out of the proverbial garage for too long. There should probably be some pulse, you know, kind of kept on fleet and command climate. In addition to material readiness concerns that come up from these longer deployments, I don't think, uh, you know, it would not be beneficial to notice, you know, the effects of burnout when it's uh, too late realistically to do anything about it.
0: Okay. So we're all about the people side of things. Not that we don't Material and operational readiness doesn't matter, but personnel readiness does as well. And your article this month um, that I mentioned in the introduction really gets at that. So let me quote from your article and then we'll tee up the discussion. But you start your intro with the Navy's current means of assessing and evaluating unit readiness is centered on the objective determination of its ability to meet mission essential task-based criteria. Then you go on to say that individual skills such as schools, personnel qualification standards, along with things like medical readiness, are sufficient to determine a unit's ability to successfully man the watch and account for the transfer of key watch during a deployment. However, this limited visualization of individual readiness misses a key element, lethality. Individual lethality is not addressed substantively by the Navy's current training continuum or promotion system. So let's use that as our launch point. What shaped your thinking and beliefs about this topic? And was it your personal experience? Did you hear it in the barracks and the smoke pick talk? Or was it a combination of both? What got you talking about or thinking about this?
1: Well, I would say a lot of personal experience doing assessments and evaluations myself. And that coupled with a lot of uh, professional reading, honestly. So I think uh, retired General James Mattis put it best when he said that the need for lethality must be the measuring stick against which we evaluate the efficacy of our military. You know, I read like in Navy policy documents, this focus on warfighting and warfighters that we're trying to return to uh, in a competitive strategic environment. And working in assessments myself for the past three years, I often wonder if we're kind of overlooking the basics. Physical and mental conditioning are probably key components of warfare. And in my opinion, we need a credible means to attain, sustain, quantify, and certify those in our sailors and crews, especially when we're looking at a near peer adversary. You know, if we talk about like exercise realism, we had an exercise that was 100% realistic, then we could probably pick up on a lot more of the acute variables that are going to determine the outcome of a conflict. But I, I, I think it's probably analogous to the speed of light in physics. We can get close to it and maybe even attain it in very unique conditions with a lot of energy, but we can't surpass it or maintain it for a long period of time. I think that individual physical and mental lethality is going to be the key to keeping a unit in the fight with a complex and dynamic near-peer conflict.
0: Okay. And this is a common theme. Like I said, if you go back and read, not just from the deck plates articles that enlisted authors have put forward, but a variety of naval professionals writing in the pages of proceedings in the blog, this determined or sensed gap between the reality and how we train, right? And trying to close that gap to make that training more effective. So we're as ready as we can be. So you tee up two areas, general areas where the Navy could focus to build and measure individual lethality. I know that the Navy does invest in those areas to some degree. But you break it in in your article into the physical and the mental side. So let's first talk about how the Navy could improve and incentivize physical lethality.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, we do address physical fitness to some extent. But I would posit that, you know, we don't address it in a substantive way, right? Okay. If you look at the advancement process, you know, a PFA failure is considered in a negative light, and that's true. But do we really reward outstanding performance? I am a little biased because I've been a CFL for almost the entirety of my career, command fitness leader. I just, I don't think we do enough to encourage above average performance in this regard specifically. I think a solid start would likely to be awarding points, right, for superior PFA performance, uh, similar to how the Marine Corps does it. And this could probably be added to convening orders as well for boards considering higher pay grades. We have a graded PRT scale. You know, we have that for a reason, and I don't know that we utilize that as well as we could. You know, if we accept that this is a standard that probably needs some degree of attention, uh, we can acknowledge that we do likely need a rudder shift to realign our service culture with regards to physical fitness. So I think, you know, an organization gets the kind of behavior it promotes, and advancement would probably be a logical place to start to kind of get after that.
0: Yeah, that concept of what gets measured gets done kind of thing. So I'm with you. Uh, when I was on active duty, I often felt like we measure you know, the pass-fail. It's a broad stroke of measurements. It's kind of like a gateway thing. But to your point on a profile sheet, it couldn't be hard to actually break it out for excellent, outstanding, good, right? And, and slide the points just like we do with other things. Is that kind of your concept?
1: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. I think that there's a lot of goodness in that and looking at using that as a metric, you know, even if you're giving that perspective first, second, or third class petty officer a couple points on that advancement scale, that that would be sufficient to kind of realign everyone's thinking and say, hey, you know, this is something that really matters and it's a big picture thing that's going to affect crew and endurance and ability to stay in the, in the fight.
0: Yeah, on an active duty, we used to joke about, you know, the members of the three mile club, right? Two PRTs a year, one and a half mile run, and that was kind of the extent of their physical fitness how would you gauge overall sailor fitness? Are they mostly engaged? Are they disengaged?
1: Well, I think that COVID has absolutely kind of had a say in this. I always say that you know you learn how to PT in boot camp. You don't need a gym, but at the same time, I think some people kind of want that motivation or that environment to be able to exercise in. And you know, I think COVID's absolutely had a say, and the risk mitigations we've had to take to stay ahead of COVID uh, have impacted that. I'm honestly just really curious to see when the PRT resumes. What statistics are going to come out of that and where, you know, the Navy writ large is going to be with regards to PRT failures, BCA, body composition assessment failures, stuff like that. So I think it'll be really interesting to see if we've maintained or if we've declined and then what actions, what policy changes potentially come out of that on the back end of COVID.
0: Yeah, I've been kind of hearing in back channel conversations impacts that the PHA could have too, right? Because PHAs have slid a bit with compliance there, and that's a prereq to getting PRT done. So there could be some cascading effects here that I think naval leaders should think about to your point. So there's more to physical readiness than the PFA and the PRT. Uh and you touch on it like medical readiness. Um and I've got some thoughts on how we could use make you get a basic swim qual in boot camp, but then you don't get that revalidated. I think firefighter training refresh is a sort of functional fitness test, but we only do that every five years and for sailors assigned to ship. So are there other kind of areas of physical readiness or physical uh, incentives we could use to increase individual lethality in this area?
1: I know you mentioned kind of the functional fitness aspect. I I think we've been toying with that off and on for a couple of years, like NOFs, the operational fitness system, where it's kind of more functional, vice just running push-ups and now the plank or you know instead of sit-ups right yeah but uh, ultimately i think it would have to be modified based on rate and specialty to be truly effective personally i think medical readiness is tracked in a pretty robust manner as it is but you did touch on something kind of near and dear to me when you talked about the swim walls. i went through the marine corps water survival instructor course a couple years back it really amazed me that they train marines to survive unexpected immersion while in a combat load which is the uh, flak and the Kevlar. Uh, I don't really see a lot of parity with that in the Navy outside of Naval Special Warfare. And uh, we definitely have sailors who operate small boats and combat equipment. And we think essentially that second class swim ball, which doesn't involve any of that gear, it doesn't involve being encumbered, uh, is sufficient to assess their ability to survive, you know, an unexpected immersion. So with that said, you know, I think big picture, there's probably some areas being overlooked with regards to assessing the standard. And I think we're talking about something that's pretty critical here, and that's kind of the filter-vice-pump concept that you know pertains to schools, quals, courses. We should probably key in on areas that exist where we need to more closely adhere to the standard or maybe even reassess the standard and potentially raise it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. It's a very warfare specialty kind of approach, right? Because those working in the cyber field and those being special operators have different physical fitness Um, requirements and needs and those working on ships and in the variety of things. So probably at the TICOM level to figure that out, just like we've recently did with the Enlisted Warfare Qualification Program, right? Don't do the overarching Mando for everyone. Let the TICOMs figure out what's the best fit for their unique warfighting domains. So let's shift over to this mental domain. I know the Navy has talked about investing in this too. You addressed enlisted warfare qualifications, but I want to talk more about these other foundational qualifications. And again, my experience is heavily nuclear power and ships, but 3M quals, DC quals, Watt Station PQS, what have you, depending on what command you're at. So from your experience, is there enough rigor in those foundational quals first and then why or why not?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great point. And uh, I've worked in training shops at basically every command thus far in my career. And just anecdotally, I can say that I've seen it go both ways. And uh, I think it's safe to say that if there isn't a sufficient amount of fidelity in a path to quality PQS or a warfare program, you know, it's pretty apparent and it gets noticed down at the deck plate level. Just for me personally, I think this is probably a small unit leadership issue. Okay. Uh, we have to kind of challenge our, ourselves to take personal ownership of those foundational qualifications and the training that goes along with them. You know, we have to be able to show what right looks like in addition to passing on that sufficient level of knowledge commensurate with the line items in a PQS book. Just from my experience, you know, using maybe the Fifth Fleet expeditionary security side as an example. When the trainers know with that relative degree of certainty that a a unit or a leader, a tactical level leader will experience some actual scenario underway, they put a lot of fidelity in the qualification process. And uh, having those trainers and qualifiers who have that real-life experience in that watch station, I think that's key because, you know, they don't want someone who isn't ready out there, right? So in summary, I think it falls on our small unit leaders, those second and first class petty officers to get that right at the 30,000 foot level though we you know we need to give our sailors an executable policy and program with up to date PQS material i think proceedings is probably a great venue to kind of explore this as the enlisted readership and authorship continues to increase i think there could definitely be some proposals regarding maybe means of enhancing or modifying the PQS program from the deck plates that you know help us to create a more efficient and robust qual process
0: before we got on record when we were first connecting on coordinating this podcast, I had sent you the link to the article I co-authored with the U.S. Coast Guard commander called the Shipboard Personnel Qualification Standard is No Longer Effective, and it offered our thoughts. That was back in the August 2019 edition of Proceedings, so you guys can check that out. That's my thoughts and her thoughts, but that was just uh, our observation and experience. But to your point, there is a lot that can be done at the unit level without looking up to the strategic level leadership to solve a problem that's easily within the grasp of those on the deck plate to do it. So I'm, I'm with you on that. So let's shift over to the recent changes to enlisted warfare programs. I think you've heard of those, and the intent was to increase qualif- qualification standard and rigor in those warfare programs. They're no longer mandatory at the broad level, and each TICOM has reviewed and updated their own instruction. So what are your thoughts on those changes? I've heard positive feedback to date, but I'd like your perspective.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I am aware of those just read up on the surf or east west instructions since i'm going to a ship okay Uh, i think it's definitely a step in the right direction and it really gets after you know making sure that the pins mean something to those who earn them i think again you know being that the pqs standard is really the genesis for attaining a warfare device right this is again a deck plate level issue you know when it really comes down to it and we've all probably heard of and or seen that kind of end of tour warfare pin you know maybe going to someone who you know, didn't probably meet the mark. You know, so I think it's going to be on, again, that small unit leadership at every command and every organization to really enforce the standard that's codified in that policy. I think that pins are something that sailors are able to wear, and they should probably mean something to those who take that time to earn them and get that higher level of knowledge that proves that they're a specialist in that area. I think that with those instruction and policy updates, we're on the right track but the deck plates have to support and adhere to the rudder shift to make it, you know, truly effective.
0: Yeah. You know, the old guys like me, you know, crusty mass chiefs. We grew up under that different program when, back to your initial point about incentivized with points, you got two points towards your final multiple score for getting that, but it was voluntary. And it was, you know, as a young nuke, I couldn't get that pin until after I was qualified senior in rate. So it took me two plus years to qualify senior in rate as load dispatcher on a carrier. And then I just knew I wanted to get that pin. I just remember seeing first class petty officers and second class as instructors at prototype and A school and power school wearing that. And I just remember going, hey, I want to get that thing. But it was tough, right? I had to go around with that PQS and go meet chiefs down and, you know, up on the forecastle, and it was rigorous. And the board was rigorous too. So those of us who grew up under that program and they got in positions as fleet enforced mass chiefs, we realized based on the fleet feedback and the behavior we were seeing that something had gone wrong. So I'm glad to see that adjustment. And to your point, again, the fleet owns that and the deck plate owns that qualification. So over to them to make that a reality and increase the rigor in it. All right. Another area of mental, um, I guess we would say lethality is, you know, this ongoing effort to increase mental toughness and resiliency. So there's been efforts at RTC and other areas of the fleet. I know there was discussions about how to build toughness in units mental toughness, that is. So what are you seeing and what do you hear on these efforts to increase toughness and resiliency in fleet sailors?
1: Well, I really think, you know, that the whole toughness and resiliency piece is kind of predicated on physical fitness as well. Um, in addition to that mental and probably that psychological aspect i 'd say they're all kind of codependent on one another you know i uh, I talked about the psychological and physiological benefits of uh, maintaining an adequate or above average state of physical fitness in the article. yeah, and uh, I think that that's foundational to both toughness and resiliency honestly from from my perspective, i don 't know that we're doing enough in this regard. This is a multifaceted issue and it's complex and dynamic, but I think we need to get back to, you know, physical fitness being kind of a base trait. And like I said before, you know, COVID has had a say, but I really don't think that statistically closing down gyms for a year and deferring the PRT has really helped to, you know, reinforce that toughness aspect. Maybe this is something that we will get back to when COVID is over. But I think that there's a difference between getting what you inspect, not what you expect, and having everyone kind of be self-motivated to adhere to the standard of their own volition, more or less. So I think that we kind of have to be introspective in this regard uh, as a service. I think it's gonna take a lot more than what we're doing to kind of incorporate these concepts into our culture again. Yeah, for me, it's it's all about kind of tapping into the basics, you know? And I've seen, you know, anecdotally again, So I've seen a fair amount of combatives training, like striking, rolling, you know, with some out of shape sailors, right? You know, and that could be construed as a waste of time, in my opinion. You know, if you can't climb a flight of stairs without maxing out your heart rate, you know, teaching you a few techniques and strikes is not going to save you against a properly conditioned opponent. So I think, you know, fitness is a prerequisite to and the genesis of toughness and resiliency. And I think some of our training and stuff like that, if we look at that and then we dial it back and say, hey, you know, if these sailors don't have a good foundation coming into this, then we're just putting a check in the box and saying we're trained them when reality maybe we're not doing as much for them as we think we are.
0: There is that correlation, right? I work out, I've been in the gym between. It's not just not when you're in the gym, you're there's a mental aspect to that too, right? You know, to increase rigor in your workouts, right, to develop the physical strength and increase it, you have to induce some amount of pain into your muscles and fatigue, and you have to have the mental endurance to cut through that. So I'm with you on those two and they play and then the more mentally tough you are, the higher you can take your physical readiness preparations. So I think that's a fair point you're making there. So you bring up this idea of naval leaders paying too much, and I'll say, quote, lip service to ideas and policies. You even use the quote, sailors matter most in your closing. I've heard those mantras before. But what are some other examples of where you hear this lip service, uh, examples of that you and uh, and your peers in the fleet have heard? And then what do you and your peers think when they hear these kind of mantras or these one-liners? Do you actually believe it? Or are there too many say-do gaps out there that kill the credibility of the message?
1: So from my perspective, I would say that a lot of that boils down to who is the mouthpiece for that policy document or that, you know, like as you put it, you know, that mantra or, you know, that summarizing phrase or that catchphrase. You know, I think a lot of it is contingent upon who that middle manager is, who that deck plate leader is, who's out there saying that stuff and educating the uh, junior petty officers on the concepts that are espoused in these documents. One of my personal favorites that I've heard a lot lately is warfighter, right? And I subjectively interpret that to mean a military professional. Warfighter probably just sounds better. Yeah. So, you know, someone someone who's dedicated to their craft and who really holds themselves to a high standard of mental and physical readiness of their own volition. You know, no one's telling them to do it. I think that that is kind of a glossy and aspiring term. Another one is the whole like Sea Warrior thing. I don't know if, you know, replacing that or using that to replace shipmate rather. You know, I've heard that as well. You know, to me, I think if we're going to use terms like this, we have to have a look in the mirror and kind of aspire to really meet them. And we need to be careful about who we're selecting as that middle management to kind of put that message out. Okay. You know, so I I've always held that sailors are extremely smart. And normally the most junior guys and girls are by far the most critical. And I think the difference between that glossy strategic policy document and substantive action is gonna be small unit leadership. And I think, frankly, that's something the Navy's not great at compared with the other branches. And when I say that, I think a Petty Officer Miner's piece on elevating petty officers and petty officers versus non-commissioned officers in the other branches. I thought that was really great stuff. And uh, he really hit the nail on the head with that one. You know, So I think it, it depends upon whom the message is transmitted through that impacts its reception at the deck plates.
0: So this thought just came to mind, this concept of naval professionals i say that a lot right enlisted naval professionals that's how i identify because i think this concept being a professional is important and my gut is to some sense at least from my experience i think it takes a while if not at all that for naval at least on the enlisted side to identify as a professional do you agree with that disagree and why why is that
1: yeah absolutely i i think that's a great point you know and honestly I would assert that it depends, right? I mean, on the enlisted side, it's career progression kind of dictates that we go to multiple fields and we learn about multiple fields and subspecialties within our rates. And uh, ultimately, I would say that it's kind of dependent on upon the individual as well. I think that if you look around the fleet and you look at maybe those first class petty officers, right, who are you know, hopefully going to put on anchors at some point. You can kind of pick out those who are like, wow, you know, this guy, even if you put him in a new role, then it's probably not going to take them that long to wrap their head around it conceptually because they just have that drive to go out of their way to learn more than they're required at the baseline to know to be able to do their job.
0: Yeah, and it's just taking ownership of your craft and knowing that you're part of something beyond yourself. You're not just nine to five. You know, there's a lot of attributes to being a professional and we could probably discuss that in a whole other episode, but I thought it was an important point that she touched on that I wanted to – I've heard other people talk about that I wanted to highlight this concept of are we developing professionals or are we just developing nine to five people who come to work? So let's talk about shift gears and get into this kind of writing process. What was your experience and what advice would you offer to those uh, enlisted naval professionals out there who have these ideas? Because I know they're out there. You know them as well. Like I said, people are talking about stuff on the smoke pit. They're in the barracks. They're in the birthings. They see what's going on. They have perspective. And we provide this forum of feedback and debate for them. So what's your advice to your peers out there who have these ideas but may not know about us or are hesitant to write and put their thoughts into the forum?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so for me personally, this is my third article uh, for proceedings. And for me, this journey kind of started when I had a really good mentor who's uh, actually a master chief now as well out in San Diego, who uh, pointed me towards the uh, the essay contest. And it kind of blew my mind that there was a forum that you could write for on the enlisted level and kind of espouse, you know, maybe what you see and, you know, subject yourself to that kind of criticism and put your voice out there and stuff like that. And it, it's, it's an awesome forum, but For other people who are thinking about it, who are maybe on the fence about it, I would say definitely it starts with reading. You know, it starts with that professional reading. And for me, that's been a huge, a huge part of my journey because you learn on the job, you learn technical aspects of your specialty, of your rating, you're at work, uh, you learn leadership by watching leaders, by speaking with leaders, by getting mentorship. But I think that you learn a lot about the big picture and about your craft, really, and most importantly, about war fighting from those who have gone before you just through professional reading. So, like CNO's reading list, McPond's reading list, uh, those are great resources. The USNI Press, Blue Jacket Books. Go in there and start reading them. Um, for me personally, it's always, you know, reading those, uh, those professional titles, you know, has always kind of inspired me to apply those concepts that are maybe from World War One or 1812 or World War II in the Pacific and kind of apply them to today and think about, you know, hey, at, at my level from, you know, what I see, what are we missing? What do we need to get at so we can be successful in the next fight? And I think that uh, Proceedings is an awesome venue to do that. I mean, that's how it's been used really since its conception. Be critical, approach things with a critical mind, but then you also have to understand the multiple factors that are at play with you know with a lot of issues that the Navy faces today. But I think that it's all predicated on reading and thinking.
0: So what's the feedback to your article been so far?
1: So the second article I wrote was about professionalizing my last community, which was the Coastal River Reinforced. And that one got some pretty good feedback from my chain of command. Uh, this one as well. I mean, my previous chain of command at Coastal River in Group One, uh, super supportive, loves that one of their command is writing in this manner, you know, and submitting to proceedings. Uh, I've never gotten anything but positive feedback about writing for proceedings and kind of putting myself out there. So.
0: Okay. That's, uh, yeah, that's great feedback. And that's been my experience too. I haven't, I have yet to come across uh, at least on the enlisted side, of a sailor who's been published who hasn't gotten positive reinforcement uh, from their chain of command. So don't think that, you know, you're going to get in trouble or anything like that. That's what the forum exists for. That's what we're here. We're an independent forum. You're not writing on behalf of the Navy or your command. You're writing from your individual perspective. And the other point I'll make is these articles and these podcasts have reached. Petty Officer Robert Elliott wrote an article uh, either last month or the month before about fixing the foundation and improving enlisted life in the barracks. That has Set an Armed Service Committee professional staff for attention, and they're having a discussion with the three-star in charge of Naval Installations Command to discuss those issues brought up. And that's huge, right? That's the reach of the forum, and that's not the only example. I could list several others. You do have an opportunity. These articles get in front of heavy-level policy and decision makers. So get those perspectives out. And then I'll foot stomp, right? We're running out of time, but March 31st is one opportunity is the Enlisted Prize Essay Contest. can win some money there, but again, you get the opportunity. And just because you don't win doesn't mean your article gets uh, put to the side, right? We go through all those articles. We can only pick three, but all that content will be figured out. It might go into a later edition of Proceedings or the blog or an online article. Um, Those are there. And then we have several other essay contests. You can check those out at uh, usni.org. Under the Proceedings tab, there's a list of all the essays, the due dates, and the topics that you're talking about. So, all right, Nick, any last uh, thoughts over to you for closing thoughts and words? Yeah, uh Again, thanks for having me on. You know, I think it's funny. I I kind of discovered this podcast about a year ago when I was on the first of four, what well, was to be four
1: iterations of ROM, you know, kind of binge, binge listening throughout that period. But I definitely think that, you know, people from my generation are really into the whole podcast thing. And it's, it's a very consumable, easily consumable form of media for us, uh, especially as, you know, San Diego driving to work, sitting in traffic, et cetera, right? So, uh, yeah, again, just thanks for the work that, you know, you guys do here because I really do think it's invaluable, especially for that middle management, like us first class petty officers, second classes, you know, even third classes to be able to get in there and actually hear the MCPON speak, right? Because otherwise we probably are not really going to ever be able to hear hear that uh, in a different form. So thank you and thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Absolutely. That'll close it out. My guest today has been Pity Officer Nick Harrison. Proud of you for your ongoing writing and your contribution to the forum and daring to disrupt and make a positive difference using the U.S. Naval Institute Forum. And thanks again for making time to join me on the Proceedings Podcast. Good luck to you.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the From the Deck Plates edition of the Proceedings Podcast. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Proceedings Podcast and leave us your thoughts and comments in the episode description. Until next time, remember, that victory begins at the Naval Institute.